about a month ago, we were interviewing a person for a role at Credix, a person in Brazil, a young woman. And so she started off the conversation by telling me like, hey, even if I don't get hired, like I already want to thank you guys because I got my student loan through Credix. I got access to a student loan, which made it possible for me to do a master and to probably get a better job, a better salary. And so that is really the effect of everything that we're building. Hello and welcome to DeFire, the crypto storytelling podcast that is easy like a Sunday morning. My name is Jonas and today on the show we dive into the credit markets. That sounds a bit boring, doesn't it? So let me rephrase. The trillion dollar opportunity to connect the global north with the global south, powered by Solana. Here's how today's guest, Thomas Bolner, explains what he does. Demand for financing is huge. So that opportunity really is there. It's not a billion dollar, but it's a trillion dollar opportunity in emerging markets. And that pipe, that platform, that marketplace in between, that is credits. We provide that access. We connect those stakeholders on the platform. Thomas is the founder and CEO of Credix, and in this episode, he walks us through the credit markets. I asked him specifically to explain everything as if I'd be 10 years old, and he delivered. We've also talked quite a bit about Solana, the tech stack of his choice. Furthermore, we also talked about fundraising. Recently, they have successfully raised over $11 million. So please enjoy my conversation with Thomas Bonner. But before we start, a short word from our sponsor. CryptoValley.jobs is a job board where engineers, designers, analysts, traders, and community builders can find cool crypto jobs. Full disclosure, I run this job board. So if you're looking for a job or you want to advertise an open position, please go and visit CryptoValley.jobs. And while you're there, make sure to sign up on the email lists so you're always informed when new jobs are posted on the platform. That's CryptoValley.jobs. And now let's start the show. Thomas, I would like to start with maybe an unusual question. And that would be, what was your nickname in the Scouts? Because I used to be in the Scouts as well. And I've seen that you've been a Scout leader back in Belgium. Yes, I've been a Scout leader for a long time, which is a very popular thing to do in uh, Belgium. My nickname there was Croco, which referred (laughs) to a crocodile. Because when I was a leader, I was a leader of the youngest group, which was the group of the... It was like seven, eight-year-olds, the ones at the difficult age. And so all the, the leaders had like the names from, from like a strip book, a famous Belgian strip book. And Croco was the, the name that I, I came up with. And it's funny because like a lot of the, the friends that I, I met at the Scouts are still lifetime, lifelong friends. I have a few of them still referring to me as Croco which uh, mm-hmm. sometimes in like public situations is a bit weird. You can imagine. That's great. Yeah, it's same for me. It's exactly as you said, like the, the friendships you form there, they're lifelong and because you have so many cool memories together out in the in the woods or, you know, like the summer camps, etc. I think exactly. really formative years. And what I find interesting, I'm not sure if it's the same in Belgium, but here like the the scout leaders are super young themselves so you have to take on 
quite early a huge responsibility. It's not like when you sometimes see, I don't know, like let's say in the US, you have like 40-year-old persons who are like scout leaders. We, we were like scout leaders as teenagers for other like younger kids. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly the, the same in, in Belgium. And so I think indeed going through that journey of being responsible for a bunch of seven, eight-year-olds, taking them onto camps, entertaining them, learning how to work as a team. I think that are lifelong lessons that you take away as a, as a young person whilst having a, a lot of fun and, and building friendships. I think there, additionally, I also became the, the group leader. So only at like 22 years old, I did that. And so managing the budget and like a bit of the vision and where do we want to go with the scouts. And I actually learned a lot there about leadership. How do you motivate people? How do you incentivize people? How do you manage budgets on, on like a bit of a bigger scale than my personal budget at that point in time? You still look pretty young. How old are you, by the way? I'm just curious. 28. 28. Yeah. Ah, wow. Okay. Yeah, still pretty young. Cool. Yeah. What I always need to have on the record is a little introduction, who you are, state your name, and what, what you're doing, like in a, in a very brief kind of way. My name is Thomas Bonner. I'm Belgian-Swiss by nationality. Grew up in Belgium, in Antwerp, most of my life. So went there to school, to high school, finally going to university there as well, studying economics and later specializing in finance. But very early on, I've always seen myself as a global person, a person of the, the world, been traveling a lot. And from the moment I started working professionally, I also started to taking that journey global. So after my studies, I, I left for London. I spent some time working in New York. I did a lot of work in, in Ukraine and in Portugal before starting Credix. And today I have settled down in New York. I've settled down in New York now as the role of founder and CEO of Credix. And what that mostly means is that I'm responsible for corporate development, strategy, fundraising, and global team management of the company. So really setting the vision mm -hmm. and communicating that both internally and externally. Obviously, we're going to dive deep into credits in, in this podcast. But one thing up front, I've seen, I read online that you have raised the Series A of 11.25 million by some interesting VCs. And one of them was also from Fuse Capital with Schwan Sekin, who was on the show here as well, episode 23. Congrats, first of all, for raising the Series A. When was this deal done? Like, Because sometimes it takes a while until you publicly re acknowledge the deal, right? Can you give us a little bit insight in, in the whole fund raising thing? Yes, definitely. Can can give you some insights there. And it has been quite an interesting journey. When we launched Credics, which was November 2021, we got seeded by Perify Capital and DRW Cumberland, which was a $2.5 million round. We raised and closed that round in a matter of weeks. Crypto was very hot. Real-world assets were coming to the scene. We are built on Solana. Solana was at all-time high price during that time. It was Breakpointer Conference. There was a lot of positive energy in the market. And so we took that to, to launch the company. And in only two, three months time, we were able to launch the product and 
immediately we saw a lot of traction and we we can talk a bit more about the exact product later on but to move into the series a so it was around that time in february that investors started to approach us like hey you guys look like a good team we like the vision that you have you're executing very quickly why don't you raise an additional round at that point in time we were only five persons we still had like 99% of the funds from the seed round in the bank. So we didn't really need the capital. But from the beginning, we had a vision for Credix to build an ecosystem. And I saw that fundraising opportunity as like, hey, if we want to grow the ecosystem and align the ecosystem, why don't we bring them onto the cap table of Credix? And as capital is available, Why don't we raise some more funds to double down on our vision, double down on the team? And so everything started pretty well and positively there. And then some things started to happen into the market. I think the first thing that happened was the whole Celsius three arrows capital situation, uh, to call it like that, which Mm -hmm. started to delay a lot of the conversations. Some of the funds that were interested in financing credits went bust overnight valuation started to plummet. People started to look a lot more conservative at crypto and at the whole blockchain industry. But fortunately enough, the partners were still interested in continuing with the deal. And eventually we closed around end of July, beginning of August last year. And I think we made it public somewhere in September, October. Now, The capital that we raised was, of course, very nice, and we can use that capital, and and we're growing the team as we speak. But even more important for me was the the quality of the partners that we were able to get on board. So Motive Partners, which is a a billion-dollar private equity fund focused solely on financial markets infrastructure, and we were their first blockchain DeFi investment. Verify Capital, a very high-quality crypto fund, that doubled down on us, and then Valor and Fuse, which are Brazilian funds that bring the emerging market and Brazilian-focused angle to credits. So uh, it's uh, it's definitely been a, a journey, sometimes stressful, up and downs, but we were uh, very happy to, to, to close that round with these partners. Yeah. And, you know, like, since we're now talking about fundraising, I think we could use this kind of concept of doing an elevator pitch How did you pitch the service? And this will help us understand what is Credix actually doing. If we really boil it down to to what Credix is, it really starts with, with a problem statement. And that really is that today in emerging markets, underserved markets like Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico that are the focus markets for Credix, there is a lack of access to financing, to banking services, to credit for consumers and small and medium enterprises. And that gap is globally looked at as a $5 trillion gap. And Credix Mm -hmm. is closing that gap. So by using technology infrastructure, we are connecting these SMEs and these consumers in the Latin American market with access to capital so they can get loans. So really simplified, today if you are a 
consumer, if you're a person in Brazil and you want to get access to a loan to buy a car or to buy a house, you probably cannot get that from the local banks. It's very hard, very expensive, very bureaucratic process. If you're a small and medium enterprise and you want to get access to working capital or want to get access to a loan to build out and grow your business, it's very hard to get access to that capital. At the same time, there is an excess of a capital available in the global north. Think US, Europe. Those kind of funds, those kind of capital suppliers have the money available, but they lack the infrastructure to move that money from point A to point B in an efficient, transparent, and trustable way. And that pipe, that platform, that marketplace in between, that is credits. We provide that access. We connect those stakeholders on the platform. Okay, that's a that's a good pitch. Very clearly and precise. On I, I can see that you 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 have practice and that you successfully <laughs> raise these funds. I think um, maybe to add there very quickly. I think practice is, is of course one thing, and thank you for that. But I think another thing is passion. I have developed a passion from a very young age into financial services and into capital markets. And like most young guys, persons, people, that starts with an obsession for the banking world, making money, the trading rooms, everything you see in the movies. But from mm -hmm. going into that industry, I started developing an interest that became more of a technology interest. How can technology be used to make financial services more efficient and to provide a fairer access to anyone in the world? And by spending a lot of time in Brazil, in Colombia, in those countries, speaking with a lot of people, that has become a true passion. And it's a passion that comes out of a, a true need and a true problem. And so every time when I, when I go to Brazil, To, to visit our team there or, or to close new deals on the Credix platform. I try also to make some time to visit some of our end borrowers, to talk to an SME that got a loan through Credix, to talk to a consumer that got a loan through Credix, because that is the true impact that we're having. That is the true impact that blockchain and crypto can have beyond all the things that you read in the news and that are often being blown up. And so maybe a, a small anecdote there. About a month ago, we were interviewing a person for a role at Credix, a person in Brazil, a young woman. And so she started off the conversation by telling me like, hey, even if I don't get hired, like I already want to thank you guys because I got my student loan through Credix. I got access to a student loan, which made it possible for me to do a master and to probably get a better job, a better salary. And so that is really the effect of everything that we're building. And so I think that 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 passion becomes translated into the pitch. Wow. I, I actually did obviously research about credits, but I wasn't aware that you would go on that level. I thought, 
And also maybe that has been formed from my, you know, my interview with Schwan, that it's mainly smaller enterprises that, that need some loans, bridging some loans, you know, like they're good businesses, they work fine. So, however, they get maybe a credit crunch and then they can go to, to credits. But what you're saying now, and this is new to me, is like, okay, no, this is actually for end consumers as well. Like I could go and ask for a loan, as you mentioned, for a car or for a, an education or for, I don't know, a surgery or something. Yeah. So there is, there is an important nuance there. You can never come as an end consumer or an end SME directly to credits. So what we have done is we have built a network of what we call non-bank lenders, often referred to in the media as fintech companies, financial technology companies. And these companies are our local boots on the ground providing loans. And we have some that are specialized in auto loans, some in student loans, some in SME loans. And they actually plug in into the Credix platform. So they will be the interface, the underwriter of the individual loan. But the capital supply side directly comes through the Credix platform. Mm -hmm. And so indirectly, we finance that. So today, we're really more like B2B2C and not directly interfacing with the end borrowers. Okay. And I think I think that's a good point to ask you something about risk and assessing the risk of uh, somebody who borrows the money at the end, right? I mean, I remember back, I mean, this is Web2 world. There was uh, this huge boom with peer-to-peer -peer lending and you could go on those platforms. And the, I think there was literally like the end consumer or like a normal person lending some money to another person, right? And you had to kind of assess the risk yourself to a certain degree. Obviously, the platform also provided some indicators, etc. How does that work with credits? Where, how does that look like from, a, let's say, people listening and they want to loan out money and make their money work for them? How is this risk presented to them? And how is it, you know, abstracted away in, in terms of like, maybe you can pool many together ratings a b c a or triple a or whatever the ratings are can, can you shine a light in in this direction of course of course no so i think indeed when you talk about credit you cannot talk about credit without talking about risk and from the beginning we have taken everything around risk underwriting and structuring very serious at credits so whilst we are a technology first company and we're building a fully integrated platform, we also do have a risk structuring and underwriting team in-house with credits. What does that team actually do? That team makes sure that every partner that comes to the credits platform gets vetted, due diligence, and meets our highest standards of credit underwriting, of technology, and of risk management. So when I was telling you about these fintechs that can plug into the platform, it's not just open. They have to go through a very rigorous process before they can access the credits capital pools. That's the first level of risk management that we do. 
A second level of risk management comes from what we call third-party underwriters. So on our platform, we have an ecosystem of credit funds, asset managers, specialized hedge funds that look at all the credits on the credits platform and that put up what we call first loss capital. First loss capital is exactly what it says. If there would be any default, their money gets eaten first before the senior capital. And the senior capital is really the product that is most interesting for people who are not credit specialists or for investors who are not necessarily emerging market credit specialists. Because there indeed, uh, Jonas, like you already indicated, we pool the loans into a diversified financial product. So you can come as an investor and you don't have to do the deep dive risk analysis yourself on each individual loan or each individual fintech. You can just buy into a diversified pool of assets, which of course minimizes your risk and the effort you need to put into risk management. You can trust that the third-party underwriters have looked at these assets and have put up some capital to protect you. And you can trust the credits stamp, the credit standard of the onboarding of all these kind of assets on the platform. Now, here it is important to, to note and to share as well. Today, also, we don't sell directly our credits on the platform to individuals. So it's not a retail product. It's more of an institutional product because of legal and compliance reasons. So high net worth individuals, accredited investors can buy in onto the credits. Retail investors, not yet. But we're working on some very interesting partnerships, which one we will be able to distribute this to retail over time as well really democratizing on both sides of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And can you, can you give us some numbers in terms of, when you, when you talk to these institutional investors, banks and hedge funds who, who want to make their money work, right? And they, they say, okay, Credix helps us to invest in emerging market credits, etc. How much can you earn? What is to be expected from, from your investment, like annually in percent? Yes. So today, the credits that we have on our platform, they yield around 13 to 15%. That is a return in dollars. And so that is structured with a hedge in place. So you don't run any foreign currency risk. That has some protected capital on top of that. And that has a diversified pool of assets. So that is really the, the kind of interest return that our investors can expect, which is, of course, a yield arbitrage that is being done between the local risk-free rates and the U.S. risk-free rates and the lack of access to capital in these markets. Now, there are a few important things to note. So I think, first of all, these are very good returns with a certain risk 
So we with Credix always, we also present the risk on our platform in a very transparent way. We show the loan level data so that our investors can make very data-driven decisions. And on the other side, we also make sure that our fintechs cannot act like loan sharks. As I said, we're passionate about providing fair access to capital. So we don't want that in the back end, the SME or the consumer is paying 200, 300% per year on their credit card or on their loan, just so that we can make our returns. So there is a very rigorous structuring process to make the unit economics work for both sides of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that that would have been my follow up question. Like, but so you said thirteen to fifteen percent for on the the institutional side. So so the guys with the big pockets, and then at the end in the merchant markets, what would that translate to? How much do they have to pay annually for yeah. for a loan? Yeah. So depending on the kind of asset class, that mostly ranges between like twenty to twenty five. So that is the, the local rate that they pay, which is for, for me as a, a European and, and for probably many people on this podcast sounds like very expensive. So there are a few nuances we have to take into account here. These people, like probably one of the only loans that they can get is get access to a credit card through a banking institution. There very easily, the rates that they would pay go up from like 40 to over 100%. So it's already a very fair discount that we provide them. And then locally, the risk-free rates, so the interest rates that they earn on their banks, also already sit around 13 to 14%. So the spread, mm-hmm. of course, is still there, but is smaller. And so we believe with credits, Over time, as we provide more access to these markets, we globalize, we commoditize this access to financing. This should also drive down the cost of financing over time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is not a macro podcast, let's be honest, but, but I have this question for you because I think now we are at an interesting moment where suddenly, and this goes also a little bit back to when you raised your funds, right? You were all still in this low interest environment. All the money had to go to risk on assets such as crypto. And now suddenly you have around almost 5% risk-free rate in the US for the, the T-bill, I think it's called, right? The, the yearly T-bill. And this means an investor now has to really think very hard where, where to put the, that money because you have 5% risk-free or you have 15% with a lot of risk, plus together with the macro changes and maybe a recession, these loans become even riskier, right? Because if there's a recession, people cannot repay their loans, etc. Obviously, you are very well aware of that, but how do you think about that? And how have investors reacted to this changing environment? Yeah, so uh, full disclosure, I'm, I'm not a macro specialist at all. So uh, no financial advice here uh, by any kind. But so what, what we have seen, right? So it's definitely that the market has changed. But from a global perspective and long-term perspective, that doesn't really change the appetite in the financial product that we put into the market. 
there still is a lot of capital available. Capital will always be looking for diversification. There are certain ESG and impact funds and angles that always need to be met. There are specific pockets of capital within institutional financing that needs more diversification into other geographies and is still looking for that risk. And so I like personally, I remain very bullish on Latin America. They have very strong agriculture markets, which is an interesting commodity to have in this macro environment. Countries like Brazil are very self-sufficient, which is interesting in a global macro market like today. Regulatory change is going very quickly and very positively for credit markets, crypto-based products in these kinds of markets. And we see a pretty continuous demand still on the investor side for credit in Latin America. So uh, pretty positive still there. Thomas, try to help me understand another thing of of credits. And, you know, I've personally already sent a lot of money to Brazil because we bought an apartment. We had a wedding there and we used also fintechs like WISE, etc. And it's really hard to send money to Brazil, but it's not because the tech is missing, right? It's because there's regulatory overhead. Like if you go above a certain amount that you want to send, suddenly you have to fill in forms and forms and forms and proof of where this money comes from, etc. And I wonder what would you build with credits? The technology is that, I mean, to send money, that's already possible right now with banks. That, that's not such a big increase of efficiency i think the increase of efficiency would be if suddenly all this paperwork would not be necessary anymore and i think your platform also cannot circumvent that maybe i'm wrong i don't know can you say something to to that regard what kind of barriers and challenges you have encountered working with these markets who have sometimes very different uh, bureaucratic hurdles etc yes so i think Sending money is is payments, right? And so a payment is a part of a credit transaction. But if we look at a full end-to-end credit transaction, it's probably only 1% of it. Where the real inefficiency lies between credit investing is the back-office processing of the credit transactions, which investors should get which amount of money, how does the waterfall flow between investors, what are actually the underlying assets that are supporting the cash flows for this credit. And there is no digital infrastructure available for that. So that is the first problem that we see in the market. Secondly is once you have the credit financed, eh, financing somebody is, is the easy part. It's like, how do you get your money back, right? And so how do you monitor that? How do you report on that? How do you manage the cash flows, manage the back office processing? And how do you create a data standard for that? That's another issue that we have seen in the market. And then thirdly, how do you do all of that in a digital technology-driven way that is legal and compliant with both local laws as the laws on the investor side? And so what we have done with Credics is put that into an integrated offering. So the blockchain and the DeFi and the smart contract part of what we have built is only a layer of it. 
we do own a legal infrastructure, a data infrastructure, then the back office tokenization infrastructure, plus the ecosystem to bring all of that together. So everything you say around like the paperwork, the monitoring, sending the payments, reconciliation, which are all the challenges that there are today, are solved in the Credix platform. It's an end-to-end experience for the borrower and the investor. The whole securitization, the loan management, everything happens on the platform in a digital native way and is integrated with our legal stack. And that is very important because that brings trust to the investors. The technology, the blockchain brings trust in trusting the data. The fact that it's integrated with the legal infrastructure brings trust into the regulatory and compliance environment. And we believe that is the way to go. And we believe there have been too many players over the last few years in the blockchain space that were tokenizing stuff without thinking about the real value add from a platform perspective. Because the technology by itself, the technology layer alone, can create some efficiency. But we believe that doesn't provide a 10x better experience which a product should provide to your users. When, when you say, I'm not even sure if I want to go down that road, <laughs> but uh, I'm just curious. When you say the legal, the legal stack, is, is that an American's view, sending money from the US down to all these markets? Or can you onboard every country? Is every country kind of like now in this legal stack represented? Or is that very specific? US money flows to Brazil, for example. And then it would be a totally different thing for, let's say, Swiss money moving to Colombia. To simplify it, we can have investors from all over the world, but where the borrower is sitting, we have built very specific legal stack. So Colombia, Mexico, and Brazil, we have today with credits. And it's probably important to understand why. And why is always like, as long as everything goes well, like nobody's complaining about this and nobody cares about a legal stack. The moment you care about a legal stack is that there starts to be defaults on the credit or the credit is not behaving like you would expect it to. At that point in time, you want to make sure that you know what your collateral is, how you can execute it and how you're going to get your money back. And so we have standardized that and integrated that in the platform for those specific countries to build that trust within our ecosystem. Okay, okay. And another thing, you mentioned you built you built on Solana and you also mentioned that it was during a time when Solana was going up only and it looked like the future of finance, the future of France, as they also say. Why did you build on Solana specifically? Was there a specific reason? Are you now re-evaluating the tech stack or is it really connected to the speed Solana provides? Yeah. So the, the decision that we made there was a very engineering-driven decision first. And so I think you, you have the, the obvious business value that Solana brings, like, hey, it's cheap, it's fast, it's scalable. But if you look at it from like a pure engineering programming perspective, it's also that like Rust is just a way better programming language than Solidity 
from like a security perspective. And the architecture that Solana has versus EVM-based chains spoke a lot more to us as what we believe that the future of the financial capital market stack should look like. Secondly, indeed, we believe Solana is a very strong ecosystem. Still today, even after all what happened with FTX and, and Alameda. And so from the business perspective, we also feel very comfortable with that. Today, we're definitely not reevaluating our tech stack. We believe for the core processing, building complex debt capital market transactions with a lot of composability and the most, the uttermost flexibility to do the kind of complex financial transactions that we do on the platform, Solana is by far the only platform that today can support that. So for our execution layer. Now, on the other side, we do believe in a multi-chain future. I think that's what the market believes as well. And we are definitely not, how do I say it, like crazy about like, oh, everybody should only use Solana. So we are actually going to be launching cross-chain solutions as well, where if you are like, hey, I'm an avid Ethereum user. Hey, I believe in this new Aptos chain. Hey, I'm a Binance guy. That no matter that, you can still use credits, invest in credits through those chains, but the core processing will still remain on Solana. It's a very complex business, right? And I think we cannot untangle the whole thing and you have to be a little bit of an expert in credits to really deeply understand it but um since since it's smart contract based and you you even if you go to credits.finance by the way you should check it out you can collect your wallet with it and you can start interacting with the protocol how does the onboarding work because it's also clear that not everybody can just use credits, right? At the moment, it, it is you need to have KYC, you need to have some compliance things go, going on. Yeah, let's redo that. <laughs> but you understood the question. I, I, I do it in post, make the, the question better. But you, you understood the question, right? Perfect. Yeah, yeah, I understood the question. So, so today, everybody can come to credits to the platform. You can connect your wallet. You can look at the different deals. You can look at the different credits. But to actually invest in credits, you have to do two things. You have to go through KYC. And indeed, you have to comply with the accreditation rule of being an accredited investor. And once you have gone through that, automatically we whitelist your wallet and you will be able to invest and interact with the platform and with the protocol. And do you also offer a token? No, Credits has no token at the moment. Our vision really is we would only do it if it brings a true value add to the ecosystem. The value add that we could see is that over time, we might want to decentralize some of the processes decentralize some of the underwriting. We might want to launch to retail and provide an incentivization mechanism. But as long as we don't very clearly see that value add, we're not looking to launch one. So today the blockchain is really used as a processing layer, as a tokenization layer. So there are tokens on credits, but those tokens represent the credits 
and not a governance or anything in Credix itself. Mm -hmm. And going a little bit back to Solana, did you listen to the interview with Anatoly on Bankless? I think it was just a couple of days ago. It was quite interesting. I've not, uh, it's, uh, it's on my to-dos, but uh, I have not checked it out yet. Okay. No, I thought it's quite interesting because I'm also obviously interested in how this is all going to play out with Solana at the moment, which is a big unknown. But I'm bullish Solana, to be honest. And it was interesting to hear from him, like a little bit his perspectives and what he wants to see on the platform. What I found super interesting is like when he started Solana, right? He wanted to build this layer for financial applications. And a lot of blockchain actually talked about this kind of stuff. What, what you are now doing in some yeah. sort. But then what happened and it came out of the, the left field and nobody could have predicted it is NFTs is now the biggest use case on most platforms, right? On Ethereum. Yeah, I mean, there's DeFi and there's NFT. And, and on Solana, I think it's the biggest use case at the moment is NFTs. And I think that's super interesting that there has formed something kind of on its own, like a market on its own in the digital realm that is actually not connected to real world assets. But you're saying, or what you're building is actually, okay, it's connected with the real world. And now maybe this vision of why Solana was built is coming to fruition. But the question is, since you're building something that Solana was built to do, are you super connected with the Solana team? How is it, you know, like founders who want to build something on Solana, how do they get support? Is there support? Is there no support? Or does it depend? What is your connection to, to kind of like the layer one tech teams, let's say, or the founders? Yeah. So we're very close to the Solana team. Full disclosure, Solana Ventures is also an investor in Credix that they invested in our seed round. But even before that, and, and that was also one of the main drivers for the decision to work with Solana, what we liked is that if we would have a question or if we would need support, we would know how to pick up the phone, who to call and who to ask. Which in Ethereum, which is also part of the beauty of Ethereum, which is fully decentralized, that makes it a lot more difficult to get that support. And so with Solana, just to give you a few examples, we have gotten a lot of engineering uh, support in the beginning. For example, they have supported us with audits, smart contract architecture. Now, actually with like the cross-chain strategy that we're building, they're helping us out. Also showing their open minds around building this ecosystem, growing the ecosystem as a whole. I think real-world assets still has a very close and dear place to the heart of the whole Solana team. So we're setting up some very interesting things there to, to do together. And we're actually going to be announcing some joint efforts this year that we're progressing with the team on. And so as founder, as a team, that has been massively helpful. Also on the marketing and branding side, we have co-hosted events. We have done stuff together at Breakpoints. So I think if you are a founder and thinking about a blockchain to pick, I could only positively recommend Solana. I would always say start from an engineering perspective. Look at the true need of your product, the value add that the chains bring, the complexity that you need, the knowledge that you have within your, your own team. And if you're then hesitating between things, think about the support that you can get from those L1 teams. 
And I cannot say anything about the other teams, but the Solana team has been fabulous for us so far. And one more thing he mentioned there that I found interesting is he he said he was frustrated with people who, who build like very quickly and not open source. Is Credits build open source or is it also closed source? So today it's closed source. Again, most reason for that is is compliance and regulatory. So we are moving millions of, of, of dollars of, of regulated financial assets. And there are certain security risks and compliance risks that we have to take into account. But as an engineering first team and culture, we definitely have plans over time to start open sourcing parts of our stack. And I think mm-hmm. that becomes very important. There we are more focused on thinking about like, hey, what actual things have we built that the community might benefit from? And that might be like more non-core credits kind of tooling and software sets that we open source to grow the ecosystem as a whole. This brings me to a very important thing. What you just mentioned, you know, share some key numbers. How much money is already flowing through the platforms? How many people onboarded product? What is the market that has the most creditors and debitors, etc.? Can you share some, some key numbers? I think that would be interesting. Yes. So today we have more than 30 million worth of loans outstanding on the Credits platform. Of that 30 million, around 70% is in Brazil, around 20% is in Mexico, and then the other 10% is in Colombia. So that are also our three core markets. The asset classes that we have financed are, for the biggest part, SMEs, around 60% of the platform through accounts receivable, working capital financing. And then the other 40% is consumer financing, where secondhand car loans and student loans are the biggest part of the portfolio. We have onboarded around 30 different kinds of institutional investors onto the platform with a few global ones that are billion-dollar asset managers that are looking to significantly increase their stake onto the platform over the the next few weeks and months. We have had 0% defaults, which I like the best. It's it's our most important number. And we're, we're keeping it that way as we speak. Then we just recently announced our first big deal that we're going to be flowing through the platform. Uh, So about a month or two ago, we announced a $150 million deal in Colombia for agriculture financing, which is going to go live in the next few months on the platform with some very big asset managers involved on that. So keep out for that news announcement. That will be uh, very big. And then uh, if you look at Credix itself, we're still a very lean and mean team. As I, as I like to call it. So we're uh, 27 people strong, a very talented team of boys and girls, men and women from all over the world and three hubs that we have created around Sao Paulo in Brazil, Antwerp in uh, Belgium, and our smallest hub where I'm based out of as well is here in New York. <laughs> yeah. And why are you in New York? I'm jealous because I've been only once in New York, but I really enjoyed it. And I wish I could live there for like two years or something just to have it out of my system. (laughs) Because I always wanted to spend a little bit more time there. 
Yeah, so I think just like New York is just a fabulous city. If you look at like the food scene, the people, how global it is. So from a personal perspective, it's 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 always been a dream to to live here. I spent a lot of time in my in my previous jobs here. And so when I had the opportunity to settle down here, that decision was taken very quickly. Now, that said, there is also a strategic business reason. So we do a lot of work with like big asset managers, hedge funds, and credit funds. 99% of them are headquartered here in New York. And so call me old school, but I like the in-person touch, meeting with the people. We're building a complex credit product. We're doing this on very new, innovative technology. So building the trust and the relationships here is very important. So being close to our partners is something that we take very serious. And then as all of our borrowers and, and lending parties are in Latin America, from a time zone perspective, it makes my life a bit easier. Because when we started out Credix, I was still based out of Belgium. And I did not have a lot of sleep. Mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. getting enough, but, but it already makes my life a bit easier. What is the biggest challenge? Is it more like the onboarding in terms of people who need the money or to convince the hedge funds and the institutional investors to hand over the money? So the demand for financing is huge. So that opportunity really is there. It's not a billion dollar, but it's a trillion dollar opportunity in emerging markets. There is market share to be taken from the local banks. There is market share in growing through serving the unbanked SMEs and consumers today. And so there, it's important for us to build a rigorous vision and product around quality, standard, and fair and impactful access to financing. Where the challenge indeed really lies is, okay, how do we find and get the capital, the distribution of those credits offshore to foreign investors. And there are a few challenges there. First of all is education around emerging markets. Second of all is building trust of working with a startup. And then thirdly is we're working with new technology that has not been very positively brought into the news over the last 12 months. So how do we educate them around blockchain, around crypto, around the potential. And that potential is really huge because that potential also lies back in some of the core values that we can think about into the blockchain space. The composability, the interoperability, and the creation of open finance systems. So if I think about growth and excitement for credits, it's not only growing what we have today, but it's integrating with MakerDAO, with Aave, with Compound, to provide better funds and a lower cost of capital for those SMEs and those consumers in Latin America. We can start thinking about building insurance products, about building more retail-driven financial products in a tokenized layer on top of the core infrastructure that we have today. That could be opened up through open-source technology standards so that other parties can build on top of the credits platform. And so this year for us is really going to be a year of building out that core infrastructure, probably going to triple or quadruple or growth in assets under management and on board some very exciting partners. 
And from there, we will really start a sprint of innovation, new kind of credit products, DeFi integrations, and more composability and open finance operations. We are now at the hour mark, Thomas. Usually I used to ask always, yeah, what should people do? Where should people go, etc. But then I've seen in the analytics that people kind of fade out, you know, like they skip that part. So I try to keep it interesting until the end and then just stop. So I can either do this with editing or you have, I don't know, like something interesting, like a hot take. What do you think about it? It doesn't need to have to do anything with credits. It could be a hot take that you have about crypto. It could be something with Solana because I think that's also related. I don't know, a, a price prediction for Solana. Obviously, no financial advice always. It could be something like that or, or, or just a funny anecdote. I know I'm putting you on the spot, but we, we can edit this and make it interesting. Does something come to mind? Ooh, that's, <laughs> uh, that's indeed. Now I'm being put on the spot, but that's when you see diamonds shine, right? A big and bold prediction that we have with Credics is we truly believe that Real-world assets will be the next big thing for, for blockchain and DeFi. I think, as always, we overestimate the impact that we will have on a short time, but we underestimate the impact that it will have on a long time. And so when I got into crypto about 10 years ago now, my passion started, as many of us, through Bitcoin. And Bitcoin had that idea of creating like a more decentralized, fairer global kind of access to payments, to financial services infrastructure. I think 10 years from now, we have seen an amazing amount of evolution, which is indeed like new cool things like NFTs, which will have a big impact on the rest of the world. We have seen DeFi disrupting part of the capital markets infrastructure, and we will see a lot more crazy things coming over the next 10 years. But what we have not seen yet is how this technology has really been used to make a positive impact on the lives of the individuals. And I believe that more and more players will start to realize that that is really what crypto is about, creating a better, fair, accessible financial services system. And in five years from now, I believe that will not be a few billion dollars that we bring on chain to do so, but that will really move into the trillion amounts of dollars. That's a good final statement, I would say. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Thomas. Thank you very much, Jonas. If you are still listening, chances are that you liked this episode. DeFi is not just me, it's also you, the listener. And each day there are more listeners joining and together we can spread the word about DeFi by giving it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Send this episode to a friend who might be interested. Check out the website, visit defire.money and click on subscribe to get the new episode and in the future also blog posts directly into your inbox. Also make sure to follow me on Twitter at DeFireMoney. All of this helps so we can continue to produce more episodes more frequently and get the most interesting guests that you deserve. Good night and see you soon.